0: podcast the movie review podcast that nightmares are made of
1: (laughs) all right uh you introducing this episode are keith foster from san diego california
0: That's right, and you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an underground bunker deep in the hills of an undisclosed location.
1: And today, we will be starting off our director's profile that we're doing over the course of the month. Today, we're going to be kind of deep diving into Wes Craven's career and... The second half of the show, we will be reviewing the horror film that just opened in theaters, Barbarian.
0: Not to be confused with Babar, the cartoon elephant.
1: I don't know who would confuse it with that. However, when I I was Googling search topics under Barbarian, Conan the Barbarian came up plenty of times.
0: Well, sure, but I I feel like if somebody was going expecting Conan the Barbarian and that you know they they wouldn't be like horribly scarred for life. But if someone was going expecting Babar the Elephant, then
1: who? Hey, Winnie the Pooh just uh,
0: <laughs> you know went under. Yeah, uh, blood and honey or whatever.
1: Yeah, is now public domain, so there can be scary Winnie the Poohs. Maybe a. A horror Babar is on its way.
0: Yeah, you know what? I think I think that could really revitalize the Babar franchise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did notice on social media you had like a golf tournament situation with Will Ferrell.
0: Yeah, uh, so wh- which before
1: uh, wh- before you get into the the Will Ferrell of it all. Why? How? With the golfing? When did this occur in your life? Do you? I mean, golf? I'm not
0: a regular golfer. Uh, my my in-laws golf, and and uh, they were kind enough to to take me and uh, my wife Ashley. So Will Ferrell, uh hosts a charity golf tournament every uh, you know every year before the pandemic and all that. They started this like charity golf event to raise money for kids who got cancer and uh, so college was no longer really an option for them so they raised funds to to help send these cancer survivors to college um but yeah so you know it's just it was just kind of a, a for fun golf thing so it wasn't like we had to be good in fact we were the worst team and, and won an award for it oh, um good. <laughs> but uh but yeah it was very cool uh so will Farrell was is this like celebrity sponsor of it. Um, uh, lots of Will Ferrell paraphernalia to, to bid on in a silent auction. Um, you know, we got to meet him, albeit briefly, but we did get to meet him.
1: How accessible was Will Ferrell throughout this event? Was it mostly like he just popped out and cut a ribbon a couple of times or, or whatever, and then you never saw him again? Or was he like on the green playing golf with all y'all?
0: Uh, I, I didn't see him playing golf, but he did he did do like, you know, this the ceremonial tee off and then uh he was there for like the auction later and then after that he just like hung out and took photos and, and like chatted with people. So he was pretty available. You know, you but in a situation with a celebrity like that, you don't wanna monopolize anybody's time or whatever. But but he Right, right. I mean he like I said, he was very willing to just kind of chat with people, and, and he's much more available than I would have sort of expected. Did you punish him at all?
1: What, what does that mean? How would I <laughs> punish Will Ferrell? It's a uh, euphemism. It means when you fanboy out on somebody so bad that you're essentially, you know, punishing them for existing Oh,
0: oh no, no. I actually, I tried very much not to do that. Um, because I mean, he is one of my easily top 10 SNL alumni of all time. One of my favorite comedic actors. Like I love Will Ferrell. Um, so it would have been very easy to do that, but, uh, but no, I, I restrained myself. Um, he was very complimentary on our outfits. We had matching outfits. Uh, he's, uh huh. Um, and he said our outfits were his favorite uh, multiple times. Um, no, he was just very cool, down to earth, very funny, just everything you would hope he would be.
1: Yeah, you know, I just saw that. I had to ask. I could have asked you off air, but I figured save it for the show. So there you go. We're not going to be doing in our normal kind of segments. We don't have any streaming homework because we're going to talk at length about Wes Craven on this episode. And I had us kind of preview or pre-watch a few of his deeper cuts. And we're going to sort of have a conversation around those. First, before we get into it, I asked our audience what their favorite Wes Craven movies were. And we got a few responses from that, so I wanted to read those aloud. From Dusty Miller, he posted a GIF from Swamp Thing. Which was
0: that the like the made for TV Swamp Thing?
1: I think it was Theatrical. There were a couple
0: Swamp Things, weren't there? One was like a TV miniseries or
1: maybe that was based on the movie. I, I can't remember. I think there was a Man Thing TV series. And then there was a Swamp Thing movie that came out in like eighty or eighty one that Wes Craven did. But I mean the the GIF is of a topless actress, so I'm going to say it was definitely not on television. Uh, okay. Uh friend of the show, Patrick, said The People Under the Stairs, which is one of our deep cuts. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh ready to talk about that movie for sure. For sure. And uh, JP's Revenge says Scream, a very popular one, very popular choice. Yeah. Alan, our editor over here at the MacGuffin, says A Nightmare on Elm Street, but he says Most Underrated, Red Eye, which is another one of our deep cuts. Okay. And from a Halloween Facebook group, I posted the same question. Jeff Pearson also says red eye and Chantel says I'm a Freddy lover through and through, but I've watched a lot of his films and usually find something to enjoy. So I'm guessing she's talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, but possibly also Wes Craven's new nightmare.
0: I, I am a little surprised that Nightmare on Elm Street is not. or Running away with it? Not, yeah, yeah. I feel like. To me, there's two like heavy hitters in his catalog,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, and yeah, let's kind of start the conversation with that. Is that you know, Wes Craven has been around for a long time. unfortunately, he passed I, yeah, away I, around I feel like there's 2013, 2014, or so. But he is one of the longest-running successful horror directors. Spanning what? multiple generations, and it seems like with every decade, he reinvents. Yeah, uh, what horror is for that decade?
0: That that's kind of what I was gonna say. Is I, f- I feel like there's kind of three definitive phases to his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's sort of the the more raw indie seventies horror. Yeah. Then, you know, things change for him in a big way with Nightmare on Elm Street. And then, and in then the of 80s. course, Scream redefined the slasher genre for the 90s.
1: Yes. He didn't have quite as much success in the 2000s, although he did have a few, I think, fairly notable hits. I think Scream 4 did pretty well. Uh, Red Eye was a modest kind of theatrical hit. He was also a producer of the Scream television series. He had some, you know, pokers in the fire uh, up it, until the point that he died. Did he direct all of the... Yeah, he. so
0: he directed all the Screams until the most recent one then.
1: Right. the The one that came out earlier in 2022, he did not do. But that was the first of five that he did not direct.
0: Intr- oh, wow.
1: That's, I mean, that
0: alone is kind of crazy to like, mm-hmm. to have a horror director stick with one franchise for that long. You know, usually after like, number two, they kind of move on.
1: Right. Well, that's definitely what happened in the case of Nightmare on Elm Street. So we, mm-hmm. you know, he directs the first one. It's extremely low budget. Um, I think it was made for $2 million. And I don't know what that is in um, 1984 dollars, but that's still very, very low.
0: Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was such a massive hit. They, you know, it launched New Line Cinema as a company. They call New Line Cinema the house that Freddie built.
1: Right, which, and New Line would later go on to be massively successful up until the point in they made the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, uh, Bob Shea was the producer on that, was and was very hands-on. And after the first one, you know, Wes Craven went off and did other things, but he uh he stayed aboard I think he stayed attached to the franchise as an executive producer. Not necessarily involved with the screenplays or the creative direction of the series, but he was still kind of making money off of Freddy and sure, then yeah. returns to it only after the you know the initial run from Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Dead in what was that 90, 90 or 91 oh
0: gosh uh Freddy's Dead it was yeah it was 91 the the final nightmare yeah and then well, can- and by that point Nightmare on Elm Street had was as a franchise was pretty exhausted.
1: Right. Uh, it was running you know, on fumes. I think they they did the final one just to kind of squeeze a last dollar out. But it yeah, was not. And then
0: he did New Nightmare. Wes Craven came back and direct did New Nightmare, which was very meta, very uh, you know, there's a movie, there's they're making a Freddy movie within the movie. It references the first one a lot. it, it was I don't know if we've said this on the podcast before. We've kind of had this conversation before, but it, it's sort of the um the proto scream because it's it's referencing all the tropes mm-hmm. and uh very very funny,
1: uh very witty. It it's it's one of the well, I don't want to say it's one of the first horror movies that references horror movies cuz there were other horror movies that did that, but In such an explicit way that it is one of the first ones that really kind of talks about horror fandom, and yeah, and talks about the iconography that the person who is directing the movie is responsible for, and sort of plays with this idea that that Freddy exists because we breathe life into him.
0: Yeah, but essentially, he's a tulpa, which is this like you know mythological creature from folklore that that exists because we believe in it like if you mm-hmm. believe in something enough it becomes real and in this case the movies are successful enough enough people think about them it, freddy is in the collective conscious enough to gain power in the real world which is i mean a pretty interesting take on a horror movie
1: right it's this whole kind of jungian uh Analysis of the franchise as a whole, and I think that is truly where the third act of Wes Craven's career starts. Is with New Nightmare. Yeah, um, some yeah, people I agree. would say Scream, I- but I think that there's a a pretty significant shift in you know, where he starts to become much more introspective about <laughs> about how he spent the last forty years of his career. Well, yeah,
0: because the, the the movie he did before that, the the one that came out right before was "The People Under the Stairs" in in ninety one.
1: So let let's go ahead and talk about the deep cuts then. Now, the only one of these I had not seen before was "People Under the Stairs," but I kind of geared this around stuff I thought you probably haven't seen, but I wasn't sure. Before last week had you had seen The Hills Have Eyes the original Hills Have Eyes?
0: No, no I had not. I actually had not seen any of these. Um the all I had seen uh last on last house on the left his first movie mm-hmm. um which I never want to watch that one again. <laughs> um and uh yeah but The Hills Have Eyes was new.
1: Right. So it's interesting thinking about The Hills Have Eyes in context to Last House, because to me, Hills Have Eyes is to Last House on the Left what Evil Dead Two is to Evil Dead. Like they're very similar in concept, and it's almost like okay, I, now that I know what I'm doing a little bit more, let's let's go at that again.
0: Yeah, um, I can see that. It, it, they're I mean, thematically- it's still very raw,
1: and it's still very much an exploitation film.
0: Yeah, but. but- but Hills Have Eyes is a little more polished just as a movie. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. it's presentational enough to where you don't feel absolutely disgusting after watching it the way Last House on the Left makes you feel like that movie is just, it's too much for me. It's too real. It's too, it's too raw. It's just too much, but the Hills Have Eyes is, you know, it's, it's a movie. It's, it's you know just conceptually a little weirder uh it, it just it has that level of like this is this is fake this is for fun
1: right i I mean I think that the both movies are um well specifically in the case of last house on the left which was his first film that he made with Cunningham the guy who directed the first Friday the 13th film but when they went off and made Last House on the Left, their tonal and visual cues were primarily from Vietnam War footage that they were seeing. And and I think this is actually something that repeats all throughout Craven's catalog, is even when he's dealing in exploitation and schlock and monsters and tulpas and, and you know, Masked serial killers and whatever. I think his movies are very political, and I think he's kind of like John Carpenter and kind of like George Romero, fairly progressive in their their approaches to politics. You know, both Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes for as gruesome as they can be, and as as gritty um, as they are, they're not films that that have clear-cut good guys and bad guys, and I would not call them reactionary in their approach to the horror genre in a way that you might say about the 80s, like Slumber Party Massacre-type movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, Largely, both
1: films are about how violence begets violence, and you see this, in both films, you see this flip of the hunter becoming or the hunted becoming the hunter and Mm -hmm. losing your humanity in that, that sort of animalistic battle for survival. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, one of my favorite shots in a Wes Craven film is the final shot of, of the Hills have eyes when they're beating the last cannibal, you know, the, the Cannibal Hill mm-hmm. people. Um, when one of the dorky suburbanites uh, is completely detached from humanity at that point and is beating them to death with a rock, and it just stops on a freeze frame, and the screen goes red, and it's just credits.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is pretty jarring uh, ending. It is. It, there is no no real resolution to any of it. Mm -hmm. um there's that you know it's just that's it that's the story and uh and i agree with you i mean that movie is definitely about violence and the cycle of violence and and uh you know and also survival
1: because even though the hill people are cannibals and psychotic that's they're like feral that's the only world and life they know And there's sort of like a class thing going on. This was also sort of on the other side of Texas Chainsaw. So it's a little bit, a bit of a Texas Chainsaw ripoff as well. But doing it in a Texas Chainsaw as through the uh, moral quandaries of A Last House. Yeah, yeah. It it was
0: interesting. I mean, I, I can see why this, I mean, why it got remade. Um, You know, it is pretty, some stuff feels a little dated, but I do think that Wes Craven, he does have this ability to to at least reflect in a fairly realistic manner the the way people just are in in the various decades, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, the people in Hells Have Eyes, like, they feel very 70s, like the dialogue is fairly naturalistic, there's a lot of you know, a lot, there's like one character that's kind of sarcastic and making jokes. There's a lot of just kind of people BSing, you know, it's very naturalistic. And I I think that's something he's always kind of been good at is capturing the way people talk in these time periods.
1: Yeah. And sort of letting his actors be actors, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't get in their way all that much. I mean, there's, you know, you have your Freddies and you have your, in the case of The Hills Have Eyes, you know, Michael Bearman as Pluto, this like, you know, crazy looking cannibal man. Um, and uh, those kind of characters need a certain amount of staging and direction that's different from his casuals in the mm-hmm. film, you know, the victims. but But yeah, I think he is, he's very interested in sort of capturing whatever the state of the modern suburbanite is of that time.
0: Yeah, I mean that is something he he keeps going back to in all these movies is 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 normal people right or mm-hmm. or suburbanite I, I I think is a good way of putting it. Um,
1: yeah, sort of middle class. You know, this could happen to you. It's not yeah just, the, because I well, I believe the, we the, talked about this a little bit when we talked about Bone Tomahawk, which borrows mm-hmm. a lot from. The Hills Have Eyes, Um, Mm -hmm. I think they're both based on the same story. So when Wes Craven was uh, trying to think of a topic for another horror film, that because somebody was going to give him a bunch of money to go make one, he was looking up kind of strange stories and found this this story of feral people living next to sort of villagers from, and I I think it might have even taken place in like the the 1600s or the 1700s or something. But uh, so he sort of took that idea and then placed it in the middle of the seventies.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, he, that's again, kind of something that he does is takes these, you know, because um, famously, you know, nightmare on Elm street is, was based off of, I, I can't remember where it was, but these reports of people dying in their sleep. And, sort of crafting a horror movie around that as well. So I think that's another Mm. interesting thing. uh, Yeah, these sort of
1: rip from the the headlines kind of topics. Uh, That one specifically, I think they were like Cambodian or something like that. They were refugees. um, Like refugee uh, children who were convinced that if they fell asleep, they would die. So they were hiding coffee pots under their bed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he does it in a way that's like yeah, ripped from the headlines, but it's not taking the story, the the exact story. It's just like this kind of inspiration uh, right. for these, you know, nightmare scenarios that he can create.
1: Right, like he sort of takes it to the next level rather than, than telling that story outright.
0: Yeah, um, it's, what, it's like, what's the worst... The worst uh, case scenario. Version yeah, like, of like
1: what is the, what is the magical thinking? Let's presuppose that whatever superstition is creating these behaviors will just make that the movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's move on to people under the stairs. Then, so this came out in '91, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was this is a movie that sort of gained a lot of traction lately i didn't hear about it as much when i was initially consuming a lot of older horror and you know other touchstones of his work but you start to hear about it a lot more these days and i and i think there's reasons why but well what what was your take on it so
0: i i didn't I didn't care for this movie, but that doesn't mean there isn't stuff that's interesting about it. I, this is kind of a rare miss for me with Wes Craven. The whole mm. thing is is tonally all over the place. It has this manic energy that I just did not care for. Um, it, it, just the whole movie is kind of relentless and annoying to me. Uh, it, and it also has this weird tonal imbalance between... Like hard horror and like children's film. To to me, this is like it's like Goonies by way of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's weird. Um, yeah,
1: I think it, I think it's that specific idiosyncrasy that that sort of draws in that cult audience.
0: Yeah, because it definitely gives it a different vibe. It, it's again, it especially for the first like. 20 minutes or so basically feels like a children's adventure film. And then you have like Ving Rhames talking about being the secretary
1: of pussy. (laughs) And, (laughs) and then, uh, that was one of the best delivered lines of dialogue that only Ving Rhames could deliver.
0: Oh my God. I mean, it's, it is a shame that he, unfortunately, uh, spoilers, I guess his character dies off. Pretty early, and uh, to me that was unfortunate because I was really loving him and right. his character, and and there was some fun chemistry between him and uh the kid who played Fool, yeah. Um,
1: who I think's great. And, and also, then... also, he was the who's who of basically every kids' movie from like ninety to ninety five. He was a he was oh, a yeah, Mighty Duck. Shit, he was in Sandlot. Yeah, he, and he's great. I
0: mean, he, yeah. he's. A lot of fun. Um Very natural. And he has some great lines in this movie as well. But it just the this movie's all over the place. But mm-hmm. I do think, uh, uh again, kind of talking about um, Wes Craven's sort of political uh, messaging. You know, there's a lot of discussion about classism and gentrification and and um, and racism. there's sort of this like. Everett McGill and, and Wendy Roby play these landlords that are like super insane and, and buying up all the property and just like hoarding their cash. Like it's a lot of stuff that is obviously still relevant today. Uh, The the way the police don't take, you know, these threats uh, of like child abuse seriously because they're polite white people. Uh, There's a lot of, Subtle political stuff. We're
1: not even subtle. Uh, no, I would say very. Not, sort of I would say very not subtle for most of the movie. Yeah. But I think, I think what actually, what I'll say um, in favor of how wackadoo the movie is uh, and tonally inconsistent, because I would agree, it doesn't quite ever find its footing as far as what it's going for. I, I think in the, in that Facebook group I'm in, the Halloween Facebook group I'm in, I, I said that it was um, like Wes Craven doing a Joe Dante impression. Yeah, I, I guess I can kind of see that. I think that had the movie had been played more straight and had it been going for darker horror all the way through and left a lot of the physical comedy and stuff out of it, then yeah. all of the, the political messaging would be too on-the-nose. Instead, it's played for satire.
0: And yeah. I think that yeah.
1: that's the trade-off, is it's not necessarily all that scary, but it is a little bit more incisive because the characters can be these mustache-twirling psychopath characters.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, if this is sort of the the laboratory experiment that gets us new nightmare and scream you know cuz again those movies play very heavily with satire but i think they they can balance the sort of comedy and horror a little bit just a little bit more uh fluidly yeah. um you know then sure i'll i'll take it like i'll take a weird uh a weird movie that is going for something over boring any day of the week. This movie's yeah. not boring. It's yeah. just choices were made. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like specifically to have um uh Everett McGill in M bondage gear running around with a shotgun.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the the implied incest and the uh and uh Wendy Roby is just all over the like giving a a, a performance of just like I mean, they both are. I, there's moments where Everett McGill has like Jim Carrey madcap energy.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it it it's a pretty crazy film. I do like you know because the basic conceit is you you have these these characters who are breaking in and then they end up in this psycho house um, where all the psycho stuff is going on, and it's kind of like. The house sort of becomes a character in the film in and of itself. There's all these set pieces that are built around literal set pieces. And (laughs) um, that definitely becomes very influential in horror of recent times. Maybe even films we talk about today. Yeah, this
0: is another one of
1: those... um, One of those weeks.
0: uh, Yeah, weird uh, double features. Uh, Yeah, Uh, but I also thought
1: of uh, Ready or Not which had a fun kind of maze-like uh ch- you know trap doors and hidden walls and sure. you know yeah. kind of house and, as well as uh the film Don't Breathe which has uh a lot of that type of stuff as well as uh Killer Rottweiler.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh well, I I also thought a little bit of uh Parasite.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I visually it's it's very different, but um, again, just kind of the idea of like what's hiding in the basement, sort of stuff.
1: Sure, yeah, and this this whole idea of of you know the presentation of wealth versus the decay of the underclass that's happening inside. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah, it's it's, it's probably, probably interesting. more interesting than good, but uh, but I think kind of worth a watch.
0: Yeah. I'd agree with
1: you. Um, the last deep cut we have for Wes Craven is one of his last films mm-hmm. uh that he directed in two thousand five, uh the movie Red Eye, which I-, I like this movie a lot. I would say is it's kind of his last good film, as far as I'm concerned. And it it's it's sort of a Hitchcocky all in one location bottle episode sort of throwback. Yeah, I. So, the strangers on a so- plane. <laughs>
0: uh, I see what you did there. I do like the conceit of this movie, and there's some fun stuff about it. I was kind of expecting more plane, if that makes sense, because um, there's kind of a lot of there's there's a kind of a slow burn before the plane, which is great. Mm-hmm. Really fun performance by Cillian Murphy and uh, a good a good performance by Rachel McAdams yeah um but then there's kind of this third act off the plane I kind of didn't care for as much um it
1: gets a little bigger than i needed it to be i agree i i think once the plane lands the movie's basically over yeah, but it's not. There's still like twenty minutes. No, to go. I know. Yeah. They they still there's a bunch of action set pieces and stuff that happen after that point. But I think the juice, you know, where the where it's really working is when they really commit to keeping it sort of a, a two hander character oriented battle yeah. of the wits. It's this, this
0: impossible situation, this yeah. what would you do scenario. Uh, yeah, in this in uh,
1: very confined space with yeah. you know where you have to make very fast uh decision Choice. making and yeah. against somebody who's you know Killian Murphy who plays a some sort of assassin we don't know fully exactly what his deal is but and Rachel McAdams character who is is runs management at a hotel and all she has to do is make a phone call to make sure that the assassination goes according to plan, or else uh Killian Murphy's going to call his assassin buddies to off her father, played by um Brian Cox. Um but for the most part, the movie is it sets up all of those pieces in the first third, and then it's really really hinges upon their chemistry.
0: Um, yeah, which is great.
1: So I it's mean kind of an it's, uh, actor's showcase.
0: Well, again, I, I think it is it it is that same thing with Wes Craven, where he's able to just kind of make people, he's, he's able to let these characters feel real because they talk like real people. You know, like mm-hmm. we've seen it with The Hills Have Eyes. We saw it with Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that's a big part of why A Nightmare on Elm Street was such a big success was those teenagers felt like, 80s teenagers you know it Mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't condescend to them it wasn't like where a lot of horror movies kind of do you know is kind of especially later sort of later 90s slashers and early 2000s slashers start setting these teenagers up as as sort of slaughter fodder i i feel like wes craven has always had a respect for his characters and and tried to tries to give them this this lived-in authenticity. I think it's a similar reason why Scream was such a big success. Um right. You know, the, the they felt like teenagers. They felt like late high school ready to go to college kids.
1: I th- I'd be really interested in seeing what his casting process was like because yeah. you know, they yeah, say one of if if you get the casting right, that's like of your job, or I don't know, there's some quote that's something like that. And he seems very conscious of that, of like getting the right chemistry with his casts. And you know, obviously when he's working much lower budget, he has a much smaller pool to work from. But at this point in his career, you know, he can pretty much get whoever he wants. And again, this is not a huge movie. It's Maybe bigger than some other movies he had done, but it uses its budget very wisely, and it yeah, it's just it's kind of a taut little thriller. Yeah, and I should we should mention, Charles Ellsworth uh, wrote the screenplay for this, unlike the other two films, which were also penned by Craven. Oh, interesting. Okay. So he is working with somebody else's dialogue here, and then of course in the screen movies that's uh, Kevin Williamson. But yeah, I. I love Killian Murphy in this and he's I still think, you know, as big as he is as an actor, he's not big enough. I don't think yeah, he's been he, I, fully I utilized. I kind
0: just of don't know totally. Like he I feel like he kinda of got passed aside as the as the leading man he can be. Mm-hmm. Um
1: He got cumberbatched.
0: Yeah, maybe that's it. I I I don't know, but like we at found out other weird looking and- British person. Weird looking, but handsome in a very, like, distinct way. Right. Yeah, I don't know. But the thing is, you know, maybe that's a good thing because he he kind of always plays a very interesting character.
1: He Mm -hmm. probably, maybe he's just a little more picky. I think at a point that was probably definitely the case. And, you know, Peaky Blinders has its fans and it's, it's a pretty successful TV show. So, you know, it's not That's like fair. he's struggling. I, I've never
0: really, I've never really watched it. Um, I've, It's always been like one of those things that I'm I'm like, I know I would probably like.
1: Yeah. It's like Sons of Anarchy where there's a huge fan base for it that I'm just not part of, Yeah, um, yeah. but they all will tell you how great it is. Mm-hmm. And I assume it probably is great because I, I really do like Killian Murphy a lot. And what I like about him in this is he gets to do the full range of what he what he can do because he can he can play very charming, and you know we get this great exchange between him and Rachel McAdams at the beginning at a uh, at a Tex Mex bar in the airport where. I mean, in any other movie, that like if you just cut that scene out, you would think you were watching a romantic comedy. Sure, yeah, yeah. And he plays well, it it's- straight, and then when he turns that, when he turns that or flips that switch, and he, you know, immediately kind of gives her the what's what and what he's actually there to do and make sure that she does. He becomes immediately threatening with almost no effort.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh I, and it's also uh, yeah, there's a lot of really clever writing in this movie as well. Like that scene at the Tex-Mex bar mm-hmm. reveals a lot more than you initially realize. Mm-hmm. But then later you kind of go back and think about it and it's like, "Oh, fuck, he was he was kind of laying his cards out without actually doing it." Mm-hmm. Um it's pretty clever
1: yeah and unfortunately, the movie sort of devolves into car chases and explosions, but before that point, I think it's uh some of Craven's strongest work
0: yeah i i agree i it lost me a little bit when there's rockets being fired through miami but <laughs> uh but that also that felt like a they had to have that to get the movie made in that at that time period
1: yeah um it it was probably a budget thing where it's like, okay, you can ask for this much, but that means if we're going to open in this many theaters, you can't have a weird little art film on an airplane. You We got to make it into something we can cut a exciting trailer for.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we have to throw in some explosions and, and car crashes and stuff.
1: Yeah. be yeah, really it interesting very- to see what... Wes Craven would be doing now if he were still alive? Would he still be churning out Scream sequels or, you know, stuff like My Soul to Take where he's essentially ripping himself off? Or would he have maybe taken on, like, a television project in a Mindhunters kind of situation? Or who knows? I mean, I I
0: think, uh, you know, unfortunately he he passed away, but he's always, uh you know, he was very savvy even even into the 2000s of 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 kind of being ahead of the trend Mm -hmm. you know inventing the trend and i think you know if he if he could have kept you know he was he was in his 70s when he died but if he you know if we're in a world where people don't age and die I think he could adapt to the you know the current generation of of horror. I think he could have easily joined in with the Bloomhouse crowd and given them a run for their money. Like he mm-hmm. he just had this ability to adapt to the times. That you know he has some weird stuff in between those those pillars of his career. Like he's just able to every once in a while tap into something.
1: Right now we didn't talk about on this episode we have in the past where we didn't talk about music of the heart which is an interesting detour in his uh yeah, oeuvre. but i mean like i said that you know not every not every
0: movie of his is a was a hit but uh that one is particularly interesting because that is the you know it it's I think the only one of his catalog that isn't some kind of genre affair, at least. It's not horror. It's not a thriller. It's Mm -hmm. not sci-fi.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was basically he had made Miramax a bunch of money and said, I want to, you know, if I I could make a movie um, without the baggage of being Wes Craven, now is the time to do it. So he did. And it's kind of a middling inspirational teacher teaches underclass white hero nar- narrative of which there have been the many and it's not even the most memorable of those but it's no, but it's competently made it's fine yeah and i still think even it's not gonna you know change
0: change anybody's life or world or, or anything like that but I do still think he he manages the thing that I kind of know Wes Craven for, and that's having that, you know, it feels real, it feels lived in, it feels, you know, these care even though it's, you know, if that movie came out today on Netflix, it would just be so trite and unwatchable mm. and with with it no personality. And even even the movie he made still has that personality. It's still is interested in character
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think he doesn't get enough credit for pacing a film, yeah you know none of his yeah. movies are thick with scenes that are unnecessary like he he's a very judicious editor, and his movies are no no shorter or longer than they need to be uh and I feel like that's something that people especially in genre films have seemed to forget
0: a forgotten art. Yeah, it, it is definitely a dying artist in the day of streaming, and are, are you still watching, and would you like to start the next episode now? Right. Uh, he gets to the point he can deliver that 90-minute horror movie,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: still have time for the character moments.
1: Right, I would actually say that his most of his movies, even the most concept-driven things, like Nightmare on Elm Street, are still character- Focused there's still character first and then concept second, yeah, before we move on to barbarian, what would you say is your favorite Wes Craven film
0: Oh scream, definitely scream i i and I think you know it I think it was the first West Craven movie I saw um it was it was it was kind of a a ho- watershed moment for me with horror movies. Um, because uh, with that movie, I learned that not all horror has to be pure nightmare fuel through the entire runtime, but the, you know, there's a lot of humor in scream. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still scary. It's still, I, you know, I think one of his scariest maybe, but there's just, and you know, I was a teenager at the right time to watch a movie about teenagers I think that one will forever have a, a special place in my heart. It was just right place, right time. And, and introduced me to a whole new world of, of movies.
1: Right. And I mean, that's why the movie is wildly successful. And that's how
0: accessible that movie was. Like it, it's, you know, about horror movies, but it's, it's just so good that you can watch it without that.
1: Right. It, it understand it understands that those references can be referred to as a sh- as cultural shorthand as opposed to let's recreate a certain scene shot for shot or something
0: exactly. like that Exactly it's it's they're not easter eggs it's just informing us of of the characters and the world they live in
1: Right it's it's a world in which the characters know that horror movies exist
0: Yeah which is <laughs> I mean, still a, a fresh concept
1: One of the characters works at a video store <laughs> uh, Yeah yeah, uh, what, I mean, what about you? What that's a good enough pick. I I like Scream a whole lot. Um, that might be uh, my favorite. Certainly one of his most consistent and easy to watch. If I'm thinking of his work in terms of one that I think is really interesting that people don't talk about as much or maybe not everyone's seen, I would say check out uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow. Uh, that was his the movie he did with Bill Pullman um, that talks about the concept of Haitian zombies, not like actual living dead, but voodoo zombies about a, a investigator that gets uh, caught up in the, you know, the political goings on of, of of Haiti and then gets caught up in sort of a, a voodoo nightmare. And there's. There's places in the movie where it definitely becomes a horror film. where It definitely like leans into the horror tropes, but then there's there's a lot of stuff. It's like it's shot on location. You have Pullman who's pulling in a very naturalistic performance, and there's a lot of like um, non actors in the film. So there's the movie feels weirdly real in places. Mm-hmm. Actually, point the camera at real voodoo practices that were happening and, yeah. and, and have these weird kind of documentary moments in the film like um, it's one of his most experimental films especially when it was made in the mid 80s because that was probably at the point when he was most known for sort of pop horror but I, I really like that movie a lot and I, and I think it also plays in his political leanings as well because you know a lot of the the common tropes of uh, uh, folk horror is this idea of you know westerner interlopers walking into pagan tradition that they don't understand or respect and then it later coming back at them mm-hmm. so it kind of plays in this colonial thing as well
0: yeah i've i've never i've never seen that one i i gotta give it a watch
1: yeah it's very very good what's up listeners? Force 5 is a show about movie-related top five lists, hosted by me,
0: Blacklist screenwriter and ex-video store cinephile Jason Kleberg. I have a new guest on each week, and the guest gets to pick the topic. Past guests have included film directors, screenwriters, actors, critics, comedians, rappers, artists, and other podcasters. Love or hate our picks, you're guaranteed to walk away thinking, what would be on my list? Search Force 5 wherever you
1: get your pods, or head to force5podcast.com. Um, let's go ahead and talk about Barbarian. And before okay. we get into but, it too deep, yeah. I just want to say there be spoilers ahead because there's no way to have a meaningful conversation about this movie without talking about spoilers, because the very structure of the film is a spoiler.
0: Um Yeah. So I would say I I would say if you're interested in it just and you haven't seen it, just go see it.
1: Yes, and it's been out a couple weeks. I think most of the people who want to see it have. But if you're still on the fence, um, go see it and then listen to this review because uh, there's just there's not even really a way to split this into general review and spoiler review because, like I said, the just the structure of the film sort of spoils certain aspects of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's the spoiler train. It is leaving the station. You have been warned.
1: Yes. Uh, So what is the premise of the film, in as few words as possible?
0: Young woman comes to an Airbnb in a difficult neighborhood in Detroit. It turns out there's somebody already there at the Airbnb. Uh, There was a, a miscommunication, and so she ends up coming in and, and having a conversation with him and trying to figure out what to do. They decide they, they make an arrangement, uh, where she, she can take the room and he'll sleep out on the couch in a way that, you know, she feels safe enough. And then, uh, she stumbles upon a, a secret room, a secret passage in the basement. Um, there's some mysterious elements to this room, uh, that seem very nefarious, like, uh, or, or, um, to this passage seem very nefarious. There's an empty room, uh, with just a bed and a video camera and a bucket and a bloody palm print. And then there is a, uh, tunnel that goes even beyond that where she gets trapped. And then, later in the film, the owner of the home uh, stumbles across her trail and uh, they're sort of thrown into this survival situation uh, where, where they have to get away from this uh, very strong monster woman.
1: Basically. um, So this was, this was uh, written and directed by Zach Krieger from the, sketch comedy troupe, The Whitest Kids You Know, uh, which I did not know until I looked it up afterward. I I knew that going in, but yeah. Right. And I think the only other full-length feature he'd done is the uh, The Whitest Kids You Know film, uh, Miss March, that came out um, quite a while ago. 2009? Yeah, I think it's like a
0: a late two thousands kind of sex comedy.
1: Yeah, it looks like maybe he's had a few other kind of lower budget things, and and a lot of TV stuff as well. So he's been kind of staying busy, but this is this is his first foray really into straight horror making and kind of flexing artistically. Well, I, I feel really like to, put, to me putting forth a lot of mood based camera work and lighting and and trying to pull the tension as tight as you can.
0: Absolutely. To me this feels like uh you know he was he's an alumni of a sketch comedy troupe and he got the funding. He got a chance to make this horror movie, you know, to make this movie. Mm-hmm. So he's like I'm going to make it all the movie I can make.
1: Right. Yeah, and there there's elements of this movie that is comedic. You know, in certain aspects of the dialogue, and there's there's sort of a black comedy that plays throughout the premise, but it's not overtly comedic in the same sense of like their television show was, or Miss March, or what have you.
0: Yeah i i wouldn't I wouldn't call it. I, I know some people who kind of described it as a horror comedy. I wouldn't necessarily to put it in that camp. I would put this in full horror. I mean, yeah, there's, there's comedic beats. There's relief from tension.
1: Yeah. There's, um, a, there's some levity to it, but it's not, there's not like comedic set pieces. Personally. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. Um, there, there's, uh, well, there's one pretty good comedic, like that transition. Uh, there's a pretty good comedic moment. From The third first act to the second act, right? We get where well, it's like this massive pullback on the tension.
1: The movie uh, is certainly kind of it, it's it, it plays the psycho trick, you know, the protagonist switch up till the middle of the movie. We're following uh these these two characters, uh, played by uh Georgina Campbell, Tess, who is uh there for a job interview, and Keith. Uh, played by Bill Skarsgård, who is the person who was double booked in the hotel or in the, uh, the only Airbnb. Reason like this movie.
0: The only reason I only like movies with characters that are, that are that share my name.
1: That <laughs> and and you know he he kind of plays around with the tension of that situation because you're not sure you know you're you're very well aware that you're at a horror film when you're watching yeah. it. And that something bad's going to happen, but you don't necessarily know what bad thing is going to happen. Is this a haunting nope. kind of situation
0: or what? What I think is interesting is it—it it is the psycho switch, right? Mm-hmm. But it's almost a, a switch of antagonist because they said – Bill Skarsgård up to be this sort of villain. I I thought that's where a lot of the tension comes from in that first act. Is
1: right. Is You're guy- paying attention to every single word he says and how he says it because exactly he's the only he's the only unknown at that point. So and they they definitely play it like okay, he's very charming. He's young. He seems hip. He seems with it, but he also seems like a little Norman Batesy. And and a little too hip, a little
0: too accommodating to the point where it's like, okay, what's the catch?
1: Right. And the situation is weird anyways, because she was supposed to to be there and he wasn't. And he's all of a sudden, I'll make you tea. You know, I understand you don't want to, you want to see me make it because you don't, you know. So he's, he's like, he's aware that he is potentially a threat. Yes, and that that she perceives him as such, uh, and yeah. throughout the night he he sort of breaks down her barriers more and more and more, and you never are quite sure if he's on the level until the movie does that protagonist switch, where well that's what I'm saying.
0: I I almost think it's more of an antagonist switch mm-hmm. because the you know this sort of uh, manufactured villain in our heads is taken away and we are presented with you know the real villain the real the real well i, I actually there's kind of uh a, a real villain even beyond that yeah there's um,
1: villains within villains in this movie
0: yeah uh but we're transitioned to, to you know from a perceived monster to an, uh, an actual monster and then you know later on there's more sort of internalization of what is a monster but um i digress
1: Right, yeah. So, once we reveal the mutant woman in the basement, and that there are people under the stairs, we yeah the the
0: and kind of hills have eyes ish too because it's you know like a mutant woman,
1: right? Yeah, or feral people and that kind of thing. But you know, there's all these hidden doors and and secret passageways and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of ideas being lifted but done in a, a cool sort of modern way.
0: Um yeah, and and, and done in a, in its own way. Like I I never felt like it was ripping anything off. It you know, obviously this isn't the first time we've seen a hidden a hidden basement in a in a movie, but it's no. presented in a, a very fresh light, I thought.
1: Yeah, I mean that it's a it's a genre within horror. Anyway, the the, yeah. the Freak in the Walls movies is a thing. You know, there's been enough of them now that that's sort yeah. of a, a micro genre. Um, but then, you know, once that's revealed and we don't know who lived and who died in that initial attack, we switch now to Justin Long, um, who is a Hollywood... Yeah. Is he an actor? Yeah, he's an actor. Okay. He's working on a project and trying to get it made and... Um, he gets a call from his agent saying that there is a Me Too revelation that's going to be hitting the trades pretty soon with somebody he worked with. And um, all of a sudden, everyone starts dropping him. His agency drops him. His financiers drop him. And he's looking to make extra money. And we find out that he owns the lease to this Airbnb in Detroit. So he wants to liquidate all of his assets to hopefully pay for legal fees, and then he starts to stay in there. In there, when he discovers these other rooms, which is the only sort of unknown that we we have, is we don't up to that point where he starts staying there. We understand that he's familiar with the location well enough, but he obviously hasn't been in it very much.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it feels very like uh, I'm going to buy up some property, some cheap property in, you know, Detroit and rent mm. it out and whatever. Like, it, yeah, it feels, you know, he's a, he's, uh, what are you going to do with your money? I'm going to put it into real estate. It's that kind of thing.
1: Right. Yeah. And I and I think we're we're led to believe that he's from Detroit because while he's there, he goes out with his friends to the bars and stuff. And we kind of learn more about. The specifics of this, these allegations and while he's drunk, he kind of reveals a little bit more about how much consent there was, whether or not he sees it as a non-consensual act or not. It seems at the very least suspect. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, he's a real piece of shit. And I, I, Justin Long plays it for the fences. He, he, right. He's he totally plays it for the back with, row.
1: He, yeah, he's totally fine with... With playing these sort of unlikable douchey bro types, and he th- he uh, throws it all in, yeah, on, <laughs> yeah, on that almost to the point where it's a comedic performance. Even though he's a unsavory character, he's so good at being that guy that you can only yeah. kind of laugh at it.
0: Yeah, and and just. The, the character lacks a self-awareness that mm-hmm. is very funny, and and there's, you know, since we're going full spoilers on this one, there's, a, a, I think, a really fun uh, sort of redemption arc that's written in for the character
1: and that he refuses. <laughs> um, that's sort know, of the final reveal of his characters when he's – yeah discovers these other victims and he has a he has a moment where he can save somebody he instead decides to save himself and then when that doesn't pan out like he thought it would that's when he starts to to lay out the same sort of excuse making we hear him talking about this allegation so it's yeah and that's the that's movie is the see- is very much telling us this is fundamentally who he is
0: Yeah, exactly. Like he, he, he will justify anything he will, you know, he is going to make it a, he he is incapable of perceiving a situation from someone else's point of view.
1: Right, And I think that the movie as a whole is really clever in most, you know, really playing up the genre of, you know, like I said, the, the freak in the walls movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and doing that very, very well and very effectively and very scary. Um, yeah, yeah. Mean, the way the way that he uh, uses shadow to to hide the characters or conceal what's going on, and then pull them out in the light, uh, key moments and things like that. The way that uh, the director is able to do that is very well. I mean, this is very studied, craftsman like horror direction. But all to the service of a greater theme that I think repeats over and over again of you know these uh well i I mean sexual I, I think predatory men essentially, yeah, I mean, and, and the different layers of that that we we see I, I yeah
0: exactly this movie approaches thematically uh very similarly to the movie men, which we reviewed earlier this year, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this idea of, you know, uh, uh, the unaware threat of men to women. Mm-hmm. Each time we're introduced to a male character, there is sort of this added level of malevolence. Because this movie is broken up very cleanly into three acts. Uh, you know, the first act is all about Keith, who who is actually, it seems like a decent guy. Then we are introduced to AJ in the second act, who presents as a decent guy, but clearly is not. And then the third act introduces with Richard Brake playing a serial killer.
1: Right, and Uh, we get a flashback of him um, in the late 70s, early 80s, something like that, when that particular block of Detroit was uh, clean and suburban before the urban decay of... Of uh Michigan and Detroit, and the death of the of the industrial industry there, and you know that movie this movie is also sort of on a separate level talking about that i mean justin long's character is essentially like a gentrifier right yeah um and uh a, a very bad one he's not good at it, but uh, no well he's <laughs> not he's not as involved, but I think there's that sort of idea of taking these these slums and then flipping them and then to make, you know, a real estate buck out of him, which goes back to people on the stairs as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, this movie is definitely uh, interested in, in that economic discussion. Uh, You know, there's also a pretty, uh, pretty damning scene with the police, which is also very similar to uh, the scene with in, the people under the stairs mm-hmm. uh you know she she's it's presented a little more comically in this um you know she sort of has this moment of potential salvation when she comes across these police officers but they don't take her report seriously they, they think she's either hysterical or making it all up or you know there's
1: or on drugs. Just they don't want to do whatever. anything about
0: it. Yeah. They're not interested in helping her.
1: Right. And, you know, we we hear from the radios that there's like this shooting happening there or whatever. So it's just not on their list of priorities. Some lady screaming about somebody they can't see in a house. The movie's interested in all of that stuff. And I think touches and all those things pretty subtly. Uh, and uh, pulls it together in service of the genre in, a, in really well. Now, I will say there's a lot of... The movie sort of relies a lot on plot convenience for things to unfold the way they do. There's about yeah, there's six a- or seven times where I found myself going like, no reasonable human being would behave this way. It, it, this is... They're they're only doing this because yes. the script is making them do it. There's there's a little bit of that. But
0: I do think I do think that the actors are good enough to play it, you know, as naturally as you can. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, of course there's there's the trope of what the fuck are you doing? Don't go down there kind of thing. Uh that, that does happen a few times. That uh of course you would have left long beyond this situation kind of thing. But you know, if they don't do that, you don't have a movie. So.
1: Right. I I I definitely understand that. I mean, there's uh there's certain behaviors that seem dictated by the script. And I think that there's I think if the screenplay had been massaged a little bit more, they could find more naturalistic reasons for characters to either further investigate dark spaces or or to uh keep returning to the place of of danger without yeah, it yeah. seeming like we're doing it just to create another set piece. Um, well, in in the case of um
0: of Keith, I also feel like it's, you know, it's a red herring because he's Oh, so yeah, insistent. no, that one
1: that one actually I have no issue with uh anything that happens with him. I don't really have an issue with the where Justin Long um
0: <laughs> I, I, that's also played pretty comedically, which is
1: uh, right. Uh, he's like pumped that he's finding all this extra space that he could possibly uh, value yeah. into his into his liquidation. So he doesn't give a shit how sketchy it is. He just hopes yeah, there's more he, of it. There's a desperation there. Like, I, I'm talking more specifically uh, the choices that uh, Georgina Campbell makes through most of the movie, it, um, especially at one point when they address. That she seems to understand the inherent danger of what's going on. And then even still goes against her better judgment after that point.
0: I mean, I think that is also, you know, that is also telling, like, she is a good person. Like, you know, she, these police officers aren't going to help. Mm-hmm. So she has to help this person. You know what I mean? Like, I I think, I, I do understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm just Uh, not as good of a person because I, as soon as I would have had an opportunity to leave, I would have been like, see ya. I I think that is an intentional goodbye forever. I
0: think think that is, (laughs) again, us learning about her as a character. To me, that was, yeah, uh, of course, I feel like you would just be like, well, they're dead. You know, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, who, who would willingly go
1: back down there? Um, at least not heavily armed, right? Right. Right. Uh, um and, and maybe that's what I mean by massaging the script like if they'd if there had been something in her backstory that make give her more of a mo- motivation to be that way other than just were to believe that she's just that good. If it there was, was the you know, some of- sort of plot con- or plot device like she had to go there for, you know, for some specific reason, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, like, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I don't necessarily disagree with you, but to me, it it was small enough that I was e- easily able to overlook it. I was like, yeah, sure. I can buy that she is a decent enough human to want to go save this, this man who just stumbled upon this hell situation, you know? Like, I, sure, I can buy that. Um, to me, it wasn't really an issue, but I... I am aware of what you're talking about.
1: Right. And for me, those are the only things that bump it down from an A to a B to me. And that's, if we're talking grades, that's where I'm at with it. Um, it's a very, very oh, solid was, B for this me. This was a but plus it's, for me. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, it's real. It's very well made. I think it's more well made than written. I am very excited to see what else uh, Zach Krieger, uh does if he Stays in horror. He has plenty of talent for it. Um, who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, this I, is it's a great uh, theater experience too.
0: Yeah, it's, again, especially if you know nothing about it. I don't think I have been that scared in a movie like like a visceral scare reaction when they first introduce the mom. I, I, my jaw was on the floor. I jumped and I was just like, I was just staring and Ashley was like, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm kind of not okay. (laughs) Oh, you took her? I did. uh, uh, Because every, I, I tried to know as little about the movie as possible. Uh I just knew some people it's, you know, said there's a lot of comedy to it. I didn't know how scary it was. Every spoiler free review I had heard said it's, it's worth it. Just go. So, you know, she risked it. Um, But I think it scared me way more than her. That's funny. Uh, And to, uh, yeah, to me, it was A+. I loved it from beginning to end. I was thrilled. I was on the edge of my seat. I haven't had that visceral of a reaction to a movie in a theater in maybe ever. (laughs) Uh, That first reveal got me so fucking good I knew there was going to be some, you know, a twist, uh, but I had no idea it was coming. Mm-hmm. And that I was just floored. I was floored. I I love it.
1: Yeah, no, I like it a lot, and it's, uh, you know, it's a pop horror film, easy to get into. It's very accessible, and yeah, really, just very, very well made and atmospheric horror filmmaking. And you're giving it a B, you bitch. Well, you know, from I have said. Multiple times. Sure, your grade is your grade. I'm not I'm not I don't to get give you to- out I- a lot of A's, I don't give out a lot of F's. I save those <laughs> grades for the truly awful and the truly exceptional. And I think this is very good. Uh okay. I think that's it. That's the episode. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the opinions that we expressed here or on previous episodes, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media on uh, Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod. Slide into the DMs and give us your thoughts or address us publicly, whatever you want to do. Um, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. Uh Be sure to leave the show a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever uh, podcast app is your preferred method of listening to the show on. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at mcguff.in.
0: Uh You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, Also, I do uh, improv comedy. If you're interested in uh, checking out my show, Improv vs. Stand-Up, please follow us on Instagram at Improv vs. Stand-Up and follow uh, uh, the theater's Instagram at Mockingbird Improv.
1: That's right. For our next episode, we will be talking uh, at some length about director David Cronenberg. So... If you have any specific thoughts you want to share with us about his work, if you're a fan or not a fan, or what your favorite movie of his um, is, that would, uh, like I said, hit us up on our email or socials, and uh, we'll read those on on the next episode when we get into our discussion. But uh, until then, that is the episode. Bye.